0: I'm not at all advocating that every, you know, psychiatrist learn how to become a psychedelic assisted therapist, but I want them to know enough so that they can say, I know that my patient has ABC condition that is probably not going to make them a safe candidate, or this patient is going to be a great candidate. And then they can hand them off to their PCP. And we say, yep, their cardiac and their liver and their lungs, status, they all look great enough and safe enough to do these psychedelics, right? That's what I want to have happen so that this can be safe from all angles.
1: Welcome to FemPower Health this is georgie in this insightful episode the second of our three-part series on psychedelics we feature dr lynn marie morsky who leads the psychedelic medicine association her mission is to provide education and informational tools empowering physicians to confidently discuss psychedelic medicines with their patients Today, Dr. Morsky shares her valuable perspectives on the evolving legal landscape, safety measures, and cultural considerations in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Join us as we delve deeper into these critical issues, building on our previous exploration of policy, ethical practice, and cultural considerations in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Hi, Lynn Marie, thank you so much for joining me on the Femme Power Health podcast to discuss a very important topic, psychedelics. And originally I've been thinking on Femme Power Health, like what innovative medical topics should I be covering that I haven't yet? And this was one of them. And then it turns out I go to the health conference and there is a panel on psychedelics and you are on it. And you were so impressive with what you had shared, and I wanted to make sure to have you on the Fem Health podcast to discuss your area of expertise. And so I so appreciate you making time and joining me today. So before we dive in, why don't you give us your background and how you even got into the realm of psychedelics?
0: Absolutely. Well, first off, Georgie, thank you for having me. Uh, my background is, my, my training is as a physician and attorney. In the medical world, my specialty was family medicine and my subspecialty, which is totally unrelated to anything I do now, but was sports medicine. And then after fellowship in sports medicine, I started working at the VA and during my years at the VA is when I went to law school. Um, But somewhere in that nine years that I spent at the VA, and, and if you can imagine, obviously, I'm seeing service members. And I'm seeing them as they're leaving the service. Generally, I was doing these exams that they had to get as they left the service. And I'm hearing the same complaints from almost every single one of them. So many of them had anxiety, depression, PTSD, traumatic brain injury. Those four were very common. And somewhere in that nine years, I had my first experience with psychedelics myself. I grew up very conservative. I had never done any, I hadn't even touched cannabis. I had no experience with anything. Uh, but I had my, I started to have my own experiences, and then afterward, I learned that psychedelic science and research was was an actual field of research, and oh, it wasn't just me who was having these realizations when I would occasionally do a psychedelic, and so that's when I got very interested. And um, it was somewhere in 2018 that I had my first ayahuasca experience, and the amount of you know, they they keep, they people continue to over exaggerate and say it's like 50 years of therapy in one day or whatever the, you know, exaggeration of the day is. But for me, it was not the amount of therapy. It was the effectiveness of the therapy because the answers were coming from my own brain, which I trust more than some other external therapist or some, some kind of uh, external locus And that was so effective to me that I I remember thinking, how can I go to work and not tell the veterans about this? But I couldn't because it's illegal and because I was a Department of Defense contractor. And so over the next year, uh, you know, that kind of uh, like little itch in the back of my uh, brain just grew stronger. And I thought like, I have to make this my mission. Uh, I need to educate people on psychedelics, but more specifically clinicians, because it's one thing to get word out to people, but still a lot of people get their medical information and their medical recommendations from their family doctor or their practitioner. And so I decided that is what I needed to do. I needed to make it my mission to educate clinicians on these medicines. And so starting in 2019, I left the VA and with no real backup plan, but just a mission. And I started the Psychedelic Medicine Podcast. And then about a year later, I realized that that's not how clinicians get their information. They don't have 45 minutes to sit down and listen to a podcast. So then I started the Psychedelic Medicine Association so that clinicians could join and we could have a more streamlined way of of educating them
1: the first interview in this series, I had I'd spoken with Jordana, who specif- um, specializes in public policy, and she just gave me this whole world of like, how psychedelics even fits into medical practice. And in that episode, we talked about, okay, so let's say we start Um, having psychedelics approved because of how you practice that versus taking a pill and seeing a doctor for an hour is so different. So like if it really transforms, that's different. And then meeting you and hearing you talk on the stage, the world opened up on, you know, the, how, physicians play such a huge role in understanding it, how they're treating patients and then patients understanding how to vet physicians because there's care there. And then, you know, the last in the series will be around the research and clinical practice of this. And they're all like at a surface just to have people have awareness. But this is such an important topic to dive into. Um, And so I really appreciate you sharing that. So I guess my first question would be, In this education that you've been doing, what has been most surprising to you?
0: There's nothing surprising in this world, except for maybe how much sexual assault there is. And so maybe that was a surprise because I tried to, you know, like I think everybody else in the industry, our first, um, you know, our... We want this to get out so badly that I think your first instinct is to hide the warts of the industry and like, please just get it out there and the warts aren't that bad and we'll deal with that later. And those are outliers and they're not. And I think maybe that is surprising um, on the negative side. So it's not about, that was not a surprise in education. Uh, That's just a surprise in learning more about, you know, the, the current industry as it stands itself. But the current industry is not legal, most of it. And so, you know, talking about what surprises you about psychedelic therapeutics as an entire field versus what will be surprising about like the medicalized version thereof are going to be two, hopefully very different things. I admit in the research that I've been doing, I'm a bit confused,
1: right? So I've read, I've started to read Michael Pollan's book, but I started also watching the Netflix series and the themes are the same. Like back in the day, when LSD 25, I think it was, was first discovered, which by the way, ironically, I did not know this. It was originally found through this gentleman who was hired by Sandoz to create a drug for women post-pregnancy. And here we are, I'm on a women's health podcast and now we're talking about psychedelics. So that's like, I just found Look that. coincidental. I just, yeah, I just kind of, that just stood out to me. But you know, then um, the the series even talks about how there became this fear and a lot of misunderstanding which basically led everyone to instead of clarifying the misunderstanding and correcting things just said they're now illegal. And now we're trying in this resurgence. And so do you mind even just clarifying the nuance on where we are with the legality?
0: Um sure. And and I'm even going to clarify a little bit about that because Please. I don't think it was Highly misunderstandings that led to it becoming illegal. I think it was a lot of Richard Nixon and his people knowing that these were not actual problems, but you don't want people free thinking when you want to control them. And we were, you know, in a time of war and the people who were hell bent at not serving were very often the people who had their minds opened by psychedelics and felt connected to everyone. And it's really hard to go, you know, attack villages when you feel very connected to everybody and nature and all of the things, right? And so I think that's, you know, I mean, I don't think, I think I'm pretty sure that people have come out from that administration and said, we knew that this was not an actual problem. There's There were very nefarious reasons why these became illegal. So currently, uh, you know, in the purview of what I discuss on my podcast and in our association of as psychedelics, we include ketamine which is not a traditional psychedelic, but it does have like hallucinatory kind of components. But it is the only currently widely legal psychedelic medicine. It is a Schedule 3 medicine. Most of the other ones are Schedule 1, which if you've heard that same argument with cannabis, Schedule 1 means that there's no acceptable medical use and there's high abuse and danger potential, all of which, as you will hear from myself and Andrew Penn and probably the people who came before me, Does not apply to psychedelics. So um, there have been a number of attempts to get these descheduled. But outside of ketamine, currently we have a legal framework only in Oregon and only for psilocybin and only at their very prescribed, it's adult use and at their centers. Yeah, I think on the actual you know, we have other places that are decriminalized, which means... You can't set up a framework to sell or tax it or regulate it. It just means that if you are arrested and you have a small amount of it, uh, probably nothing will happen. It's like some low priority. Decriminalization means different things in different townships, et cetera. But there are a number of cities... And, and a couple of states that have decriminalized different amounts, like some just, just psilocybin, or some just natural psychedelics, or some all psychedelics, depending on what you're talking about. But again, difference between decriminalization and legalization. So as far as legalization, only psilocybin only for very specific use in or in Oregon and by when i say specific i mean adult use in their centers with the prescribed psilocybin and i don't mean like for specific conditions it's not condition related and then the other legal one is ketamine outside of the us that varies widely there are places where there's it's in a gray area different psychedelics are and then places like amsterdam you cannot have psilocybin mushrooms but you can have psilocybin truffles which is like this part that grows beneath the ground and like, there's all these different regulations. So I can't give you a worldwide view, but I can tell you what's going on in the U S and, and there are a lot of, you know, different you every day. There's like, okay, this bill and this state is trying to pass this and this, And it's just a lot, nothing besides Oregon and Colorado have actually passed anything. So today legally, if this is the right word, if I'm
1: in Oregon or Colorado, I can access psilocybin.
0: Just Oregon currently. Just Just, Oregon. So so now psilocybin is decriminalized in Colorado. They are setting up a legal framework for natural medicines that is not yet in play. Oh my gosh,
1: this is overwhelming. And
0: then ketamine is being researched. Ketamine has been legal since the 60s. Yeah, it's generic. It is, you know, we would research it more if it were less generic. Unfortunately, you know, like the companies have to have a a financial incentive to do research sometimes. And since it's been generic for so long, it's that's been harder to do. But yes, there is research on still ongoing on ketamine.
1: Okay, here's what what I, I guess maybe if we could just do a bottom line here, which is people use the term psychedelics. And is it, fine to use that umbrella term just for the sake of conversation and not mince words between the five different you know the the DMT the LSD the MDMA all that does it we don't necessarily yeah
0: and and I would I mean I think we cover 12 on the podcast so okay. yes but but I like I said I keep them all under the same umbrella we can always you know for specific reasons you can parse one out versus the other but for this purpose of this conversation you can just throw them under one umbrella
1: okay so there have been some concerns around the safety of psychedelic therapy, such as reports of psychedelic facilitators abusing their patients. So can you clarify these issues and address the safety protocols that are in place?
0: Oh, I wish there were safety protocols in place. That would be amazing. That is part of what needs to be coming online as this field goes medical because this has been underground for forever outside of ketamine right ketamine is not underground because it is legal but the use of ketamine as an antidepressant is only you know not more than 20 years old and there are still no specific protocols for its use um there's commonly used protocols but you know not everybody has the certain same type of monitors like they they might have, for let's say we're talking about a ketamine IV facility. Yeah, you'll probably have like a medical assistant in the room to make sure the patient's blood pressure doesn't go too high. But do you have a trained psychiatric provider in the room if the patient starts having psychiatric issues? Well, not the places I've gone. And so, you know, safety protocols are like, there are organizations working on making ethics guidelines and uh, protocols for the psychedelic practitioners. And it will be a much safer place. And that's why I said, you know, beforehand, if the underground world looks like and what psychedelics as part of the medical system, hopefully will look very different. Because once you move to the medical system and we have something akin to a specialty like, let's say, cardiology. If as a primary care doctor, I want to refer to a cardiologist, I am going to refer to a board certified cardiologist. And that means I know they have done a cardiology fellowship and they have taken their boards and they're keeping up on their continuing medical education credits. There isn't currently an equivalent in psychedelics and that is a problem. So it's a problem for many reasons. Um, on the patient side, there is, there are no safety protocols at this point. They're like, uh, the American, uh, psychedelic practitioners association has, is, you know, working on ethics guidelines and has put out some, you know, general guidelines, but that's, those are, those are guidelines. Nobody is enforcing them at this point. And so when we talk about abuse, it can come in a number of forms. And if somebody really wants to do a deep dive, if you go to the Psychedelic Medicine Podcast, one of our most recent episodes, um, right now it's November, so probably maybe October, September, October, we did an episode on, um, like, supporting survivors of psychedelic abuse. And the abuse can be in many forms. One, the most obvious and the most well, one of the most unfortunate is that there can be sexual abuse. I mean, these can put you in a very amorous state, in another state of consciousness, and um, like with anything that can do, can create a power differential. Then people can abuse that, and so having somebody as your guide. And you're the one in alter state of consciousness and you have to look to them and like, you're going through an amazing thing and you're like, wow, this person facilitated this for me. Well, that sure creates an interesting dynamic. You feel very indebted to them and they have a person who's kind of under their control really. And in the underground, that has been a big problem. It's something that I think a lot of us wanted to pretend at the beginning wasn't as big a problem as it was, but it is. And so that is a major thing that having these guidelines and having people be accountable, Two licensing agencies will improve now just to point out in the regular world of medicine they did a a survey of regular therapists and i'm going to botch the actual numbers here but like they did a survey of therapists again not psychedelic regular therapists seeing patients without psychedelics no altered state of consciousness some non-small percentage self-reported that they had had an inappropriate relationship with their patient. And that's self-reporting, right? So you know the actual number is larger, and that's outside of the psychedelic world. So I want to point out that this is not only in psychedelics. This is a problem anytime you have a power dynamic. Just the problem with psychedelics is that you have one person that is basically dependent on the other during the period of time where they're in an altered state of consciousness. And so that just makes it even more important for us to have these guidelines, one. Two, for people to know how to, as you alluded to the beginning, know how to vet your facilitator, vet your retreat center. That should decrease um, issues. Uh, we have to tell the actual guides, hey, this isn't appropriate. Like, okay, you can touch on the hand if you've asked, can I touch on your hand? But let's say no touching in other places, right? It's and it's. Here's the thing: is that these states of consciousness put people in. There's such ecstatic, very often amazing people feel better for the first time in forever this might be the first time they felt not suicidal in weeks they are so grateful and so loving that they do want to just wrap their arms around the person who's bringing this to them it's just a natural reaction and and it's that's why this is hard because we're you know people who get in situations are not always you know the facilitators being nefarious it's just that the situation lends itself to this really intimate contact and that's why we just have to be extra careful. But other, you know, other types of abuse that we talk about on the episode is that again, again, this is mostly underground is that, you know, some people get in, you know, financial abuse situations like, okay, now you have to come to me every month for your healing and I'm responsible for your healing. You have to keep paying. And these, you know, again, it's all power dynamics, all those kinds of things that will be helped when we have an actual medicalized model. Wow. I'm listening
1: to you and I'm thinking, well, the underground exists. It's going to take time to look at this medical model for a variety of reasons. And, you know, in in the previous episode, we talked about another way we worded the underground was the wellness category. So there's like the medical and then there's the the wellness. And we could use many other terms. There's probably subcategories if we wanted to dissect it um, further. So it is happening we have the underground, the wellness, whatever. What should someone consider today? Like you've had the experience. Um, cause I guess here's what I will say. People, when they need help for anything, they're going to do what they need to do. You know, like I went through four years of fertility. Like I got to a point where I'm like, I don't really care. Like I even disagreed with one of the things i needed to do and i'm like but you know what i'm out of options i don't even care anymore i'll do it so when when someone is and i can just imagine with mental health you know so what are some realistic criteria
0: someone can take into account now Yes, yeah, so it depends on what you're looking for, what drug we're talking about, if you're talking about individual versus retreats, but let me let me say if you are, you know, at the end of your open this person is looking to go to like an international location, they're going to do a retreat. One, verify that the facilitators have actually done a training. Now, this is kind of hard because some drugs like 5-MeO-DMT didn't have a training for a number of years. Now there is, but there wasn't. And so how do you know if the person is well-trained? That's hard to say. Um, so then talk, if you and this is, again, really hard if you don't have a psychedelic community. I was going to say, talk to other people that have experienced with those same people. And I want to just asterisk here that none of this is a 100% protection because I have done all this for a retreat and still had a bad experience happen. Like, it is impossible to prevent everything, just like it's impossible to go into a surgery and say that there will be no complications. Same thing, right? You can vet that. You can have the best doctor on earth. Something can slip. You have no idea, right? Anyway, so make sure that they've been training. Ask them what their refund policy is. If they, if they will not refund you, if you get down there and for any reason feel unsafe going ahead of it, and they don't give you a significant amount of your money back, I would say no. Another thing, if they're doing an intake with you, and not if, they must be doing an intake with you. And on that intake, they must be doing a thorough Medical history. They need to ask all of your medications. And if you're on a number of medicines, they need to make sure that they send you to your primary care doctor to verify that there's not going to be a problem with that because most people running these retreats are not medical doctors, right? But that's another question. Will you have medical staff on site? And that's another important, especially, I mean, by the way, the other asterisk here is if you're doing Ibogaine, this is all to the nth degree, much more important. You have to have a cardiologist do your clearance. There has to be cardiology on site, um, has to be an EKG monitoring going on. Like that one has specific cardiotoxicity, And so all the stakes are higher there. But, I, you know, talk to the facilitators, ask them, and these are, you know what, this is what's so terrible is that this is an awkward question asking somebody who's like, you're coming to for help, like, what, you qualified? You know, like, it's something we would never have to do in the regular world, right? We can just Google and see, oh, Dr. So-and-so went to Harvard. That You know, here, this is sometimes, they should say on their website, but if they don't, you have to ask, and that's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, um, especially somebody's already struggling with mental um, health problems, like, unfortunate. But I'd start with those questions, and and you can get a sense with how open they are with you. If any of these questions give them, like, they, they they start to be a little defensive about the refunds a little defensive about their training just run nope there's there will be other options right see what kind of affiliations they have uh are you know i run the psychedelic medicine association are are they a member of some association like that where they are constantly learning and being updated on on information like there's a lot of of things you can do but also kind of go with your intuition because you are handing over your consciousness to this person and if you have any doubts in your gut about that, that's going to be setting you up for failure kind of from the beginning. So intuition, check their check their training, check that they are doing a thorough screening with you and that they insist that you do a thorough screening with your physician. If you're at all me- medically complicated, make sure they have a refund. I think that those things kind of get over the majority of if you're sending someone for like an out of the country retreat. Also, look at your own comfort level. I have gone to out of the country retreats where like I am sleeping in the middle of the jungle and roosters are like crowing at three in the morning and like there were chainsaws going off during our ayahuasca. Like this was just absolutely terrible. Know your, maybe if I were like Bear Grylls or whatever that guy is who loves to sleep out in the, that would have been fine. But no, this was like a total disaster. So just know your comfort level. Also something else to consider, Is do you prefer to do your healing in a group or individually? I don't love groups because then like if one person is, I don't know, chewing too loudly, I'm going to be like, I have sensory issues, right? So like, no, (laughs) yes. Right. Like the misophonia is real. And so I just can't. Right. So that same ayahuasca where the chainsaws are going on, somebody brought a baby and the baby was crying the whole time. I was like, this is a nightmare, right? Like absolutely the worst. (laughs) So like and that's what I'm saying is that you just there are things that you can't even know that could happen until you get there. Like I would never think to ask will there be a baby right. at this retreat because like obviously there wouldn't until there was, right? And so, you know, these are the, the best you can do but if we're talking a ketamine clinic, now that's different. There are different forms and I wish that I could give you like a, an algorithm for how to to go through this but there are different forms of ketamine. There is, you know, intramuscular which is a shot one-time shot, maybe a second booster shot, but it's, you know, in one session, all of the ketamine sessions are usually somewhere between an hour to two and a half, three hours at the very longest. And either you can sit there with an IV the whole time, or you could have an injection or they now have sublingual. There's also like rectal ketamine. There's all kinds of types, but the most common are intravenous intramuscular and sublingual. They also have Spravato, which is the one FDA approved covered by insurance S ketamine nasal spray. But, um, Usually with the losages and with the nasal, you're not having the full psychedelic uh, dose. It's a more psycholytic dose, they say. So you know, like things are opened up in your brain, but not quite in the same like dissociative way necessarily. Um, with that you have to decide do I want to go in and just do have ketamine put into me or would I like ketamine assisted psychotherapy which is where there is a trained psychotherapist with you at least for part of it and they can talk through things with you especially as you're coming out of it maybe as you're going into it maybe if you're taking like a psychedelic dose during the middle you're not talking about it but as you're coming out it's you know good to have somebody there so that's another level again You can say like, "Are you a trained ketamine-assisted psychotherapist?" Well, they can tell you what program they've done. That, but whether or not that is a program that has been certified by a certifying body, no, that doesn't exist yet. And so maybe ask like, "How long was your program?" Some are a weekend, some are a year, right? And so just look at that, like you know, and you can even say, "What program did you do?" And maybe go investigate that. You know, just Google that program and see like, does it look like it was pretty thorough? okay then maybe that's a a good option so I'd say those are long-winded answer but those are some ways to kind of vet where you may be going so real quick with the ketamine clinic
1: if I heard you correctly it seems like you could go in and just get a dose and then you can also get therapy with it is it safe to ever just get a dose without someone monitoring what might happen to you or is it one of those oh I've been there I know the reaction let me just like how does that work
0: so monitoring, they will, like I said, that when I went to the IV ketamine clinic, there was a medical assistant monitoring my blood pressure, but she's not there for any type of therapy. And there is a, there are a lot of very uh, established ketamine clinics that have been doing ketamine without psychotherapy for years. And what they will say is, we make sure the person has a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist and we send them back to that person afterward. I mean... We, this is the problem. We don't have a head-to-head comparison. Okay. We don't have a study yet of one to the other, which would be a hard study to do. But people, we should at least try to, you know, approximate what it would be like one to one, the exact same type of therapy, but one with a psych, you know, a psychotherapist there and one without, because just the ketamine itself actually does help a lot of people. So it's we don't know that having a psychotherapist there. I don't think we can say for you know medically like research certain <laughs> evidence based that it. that's better. Uh, But I think there's a lot of reasons that it would seem better, right? Yeah. You you know, I remember the person who put the the drip in my arm. She was like, yeah, it's going to be kind of like you had two margaritas and then like goes about her business and like none of that was accurate, right? Like, I mean... (laughs) I knew going in that it wasn't going to be like that. Thank goodness. You know, again, like you said, I knew. Right. So I was just like, what kind of margaritas do you make? But like if somebody else is new to it and that's the instruction they get, they may think like, oh my God, I'm having like ego disillusion where like suddenly you're so dissociated from who you are. And they're like, this is too strong. I was only supposed to feel like a margarita. Like that would not have been helpful for them. Right. right? And so at that point, if they started freaking out to have a trained psychotherapist in the room, be like, nope is absolutely normal breathe through it you're doing fine like that would have been very helpful so you know i guess if if we wanted to say on the safest side for a brand newbie have a ketamine assisted psychotherapist there right i think that's probably the the safest default we can guess at this point for at least for the first session
1: okay i have to say like when I was first learning why they were banned and how they're, quote unquote, coming back to life, I'm like, this is great. I was so left to try it. But the more I'm diving in, the more I have to say I'm becoming nervous because I also have a mental health condition that I think is contraindicated. And so my like, oh, what the heck? Let's just try it. I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I may be full on heck no, do not do this, Georgie. <laughs>
0: I mean, I mean, thank you for being cautious, right? Because so many people they don't think about it, and then they, you know, like it will un, you know, there there have been times where it can uncover uh, a psychotic disorder or uh, something that was like latent bipolar disorder, something like that, and so, and then they're, you know, they they're finding with like borderline personality disorder, it it's having it has different effects than it does of people who don't have that, and so. Yes, we need to be more cautious than and I think that's a lot of why I was saying that that intake is so important. If you don't have somebody asking your medical history, they would not know about what other other condition you had that might be a contraindication so that's why we really like I'm such an advocate for educating the primary care and psychiatrist uh, force of the country to to be able to at least help on the clearance side. They don't have to know how to do these. I'm not at all advocating that every, you know, psychiatrist learn how to become a psychedelic assisted therapist, but I want them to know enough so that they can say, I know that my patient has ABC condition that is probably not going to make them a safe candidate, or this patient is going to be a great candidate, and then they can hand them off to their PCP, and we say, yep, they're, cardiac and their liver and their lungs status they all look great enough and safe enough to do these psychedelics, right? That's what I want to have happen so that this can be safe from all angles. Some have said, unless
1: you've been there, done that, don't bother treating the patients.
0: Right. That is the everlasting debate is that, can you be a psychedelic assisted therapist if you have never done psychedelics? And I would say something, my my answer, my my view on this is somewhere in the in-between, which is I think if you have had some type of altered state of consciousness where you can understand what your patients are describing to you, that should be enough for you to have that common ground. So breath work is my favorite example. You can do types of breath work that can put you in altered psychedelic states. I have been there. It is impressive to to see how you just breathing your your own breath in a certain way can lead to the same place that these you know hardcore psychedelics can, but it is possible, and I think that without you know forcing every potential therapist to undergo psychedelics, that is a way to kind of level the playing field because most people are safe to do breath work. Some people, you know, very few people might not not be able to, but compared to psychedelics, like it's a wider swath of people that would be able to. And the reason that I think there should be some knowledge of an altered state of consciousness is that if I just went, like, remember I was describing a, sec- a second ago, I just dropped the term ego disillusion. And if you are trying to describe, and like, I'm assuming, let's say a large swath of your audience has not experienced ego disillusion. Wouldn't you dear listener want to, if you were my therapist, know what I was talking about. Right. And like, that's something that if you've been there, you know exactly what it is, as opposed to me telling you what it's like. But then the argument always comes back. Well, you know, for years, doctors have been prescribing things or doing surgeries that they've never taken, you know, the drugs they've never taken and surgeries they've never had themselves. So for sure, if somebody says like, man, I I took this chemotherapy and now something is tingling in my hands and feet, um, the doctor may not exactly know what that chemotherapy-induced tingling of the hands and feet is, but they've had a tingling somewhat like that if they sat on their hands and feet you know too long in a cross-legged position or something right so i think it's kind of akin to that it's like you don't have to have had the exact same nitis of the experience but as long as you can had something similar enough to have the conversation okay then i think that's important okay but the the asterisk always is if like there's a therapist out there and for whatever reason they like medically cannot even do um uh a breath work or something like that, that that's where I, I have a harder time because I never want to be ableist. But, you know, I'm like, wh- how, how could we find a way that everybody could glimpse a little bit of alter state of consciousness just to better understand their patients? I, you know, that's something I would love to figure out.
1: Okay. I, I really like your answer. I think it's a, it's a fair one because, you know, we always want the perfect world. And again, there's so many complications in this. So do you see psychedelics potentially being part of mainstream healthcare?
0: oh yeah, I won't stop until they are like my mission is like, because I have a lot of patients or um, clinicians come and they say, is it going to put me um, in a liable place for malpractice? If I discuss psychedelics with my patients and my mission is to make it malpractice to not discuss psychedelics with your patients when there is a psychedelic option that is appropriate, because imagine that there's something that is significantly more effective than everything else out there. And your doctor just didn't tell you about it. You went ahead and just took your, you know, say, it, say it's PTSD. And we know how effective MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is for PTSD. But you just keep giving your patient the therapy and the, you know, maybe antidepressant or antipsychotic you've been doing for years. They continue to take it for the rest of their life. They continue to have a decreased quality of life. They might not even be able to work. A lot of people are on disability for PTSD. And you never tell them about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That, to me, should be malpractice. So, yes, I absolutely see a time when this is just integral. You know, it, will it be overnight? No. But I think once people start seeing the results, you know, they, it's already getting enough. Like you said, you've seen the Netflix series, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's so much more effective. And your average person doesn't want to be on a medicine that they have to take every day. That, And if we're talking mental health in just in this instance, you know, a lot of them numb people out or they have side effects. By the way, I'm not anti-pills, not anti-antidepressants. They are very useful for a lot of people, but we know there's about 40% of people they are not helping. So like, why wouldn't we want to give those people every last chance to have a better quality of life? So yeah, absolutely. We will find a way to make this work.
1: What could be some legal challenges that we may need to take into consideration? I mean, you've put in all these precautions, but we are a very litigious society, so... (laughs) what can happen because we've talked about all these possibilities which by the way I didn't even think about it until just now like do any folks who have bad experiences sue even these retreats
0: um yes I believe they they have but again like um it's very difficult because generally the retreats are outside of the country so an international lawsuit is very difficult um I I don't I don't even know of one right off the top of my head that where that happened, but um, there are definitely like one retreat center was recently taken off of a retreat kind of Yelp site because they had had so many complaints about the people of that. I mean, the, and by the way, the amount that people get away with in the underground, like uh, Mike Tyson's uh, facilitator had killed four people and he continues to practice because it's just in a country where like you can't i mean and by the way killed like people died during his ceremonies and not of and seemingly of things that like could have been prevented uh so like there's plenty you know i'm i'm not naming a name but there's plenty of things on the internet about this that you can read and you know that person is able to continue to practice because there's no um set of regulations or proof or If you can't say this is the gold standard for facilitating, then how do you say he didn't do the gold standard, right? So that's the thing is that once we have gold standards, then as a clinician, you follow them, like just like you would with anything else. And then accident, like I went in for a bunion surgery. They had a resident do it because in a teaching hospital, you can have residents do it. He cut out too much of my bone. My toe doesn't work right. But You can't predict that you could I couldn't like when I went in, they never said we might accidentally take too much of the bone like this comes down to informed consent. You cannot like what if the power goes out during a procedure and the patient dies because the power went out like at no point before going to the procedure does the doctor ever say no, you might die from a power outage, right? Like you cannot prevent every last thing from happening, and especially with these psychedelics, um, you have no idea what's going to happen in this altered state of consciousness. Like if somebody takes an antidepressant, we've known enough that like, yeah, there might be these adverse effects. So we can tell you, ah, there might be suicidality. Uh, you might sleepwalk, you might eat more, gain weight, whatever. But these are wildly different. You might see a memory that never actually happened, or you might learn something that did happen and you had no idea it was there, or you might see your idea of God, right? Like such a wildly different amount of things that can happen that informed consent is a real challenge. Um, So like to answer your question, which is like, what can go wrong is basically like, an informed consent lineup like usually when you go into a procedure you're like okay I'm going to inform you of everything that can go wrong before I get your consent and with psychedelics that is very difficult and also the other reason it's difficult is because um, to tell the person who's never had a psychedelic before you might see this and this you might experience ego disillusion blah blah then you're setting up an expectation which you do not want to do so how do you get informed consent without setting putting things in their head and setting an expectation that if they don't reach, then they feel they failed, or if they get something different, they failed, or they're just waiting like, hey, it didn't work for me because I didn't get to this certain thing they described, right? So, like, informed consent is a big topic in this whole, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Getting back to your why it is not just one podcast. Do
1: you have any knowledge of how this can help women uniquely?
0: As I was, like, you know, waiting to start this interview. I was doing some work for another contract that I have and this article came up and I'm trying to pull it up here now. It says from the British Medical Journal, explore psilocybin and other psychedelics for women's cancer distress, urge doctors. And it goes on to talk about, you know, why there's so many women with, you know, ovarian cancers and other gynecological cancers have a lot of physical and psychological challenges. They were suggesting that psychedelics have been shown to be both helpful often for pain, And also for, you know, um, the kind of distress, anxiety, and depression that come with what can be terminal diagnosis. So I love that this article popped out right before you and I were chatting. But what other things are being looked at? And this is the problem is that, as you talked about before, healthcare is a business. And so there was a company that was going to look at psychedelics for female sexual arousal disorder, but it wasn't able to raise enough money. Um... There are companies that I think are going to look at different ways for uh, psychedelics to be used to address either PMS, postpartum depression, um, various things in that realm. I can't wait till they're looking at like perimenopause, menopausal symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If anybody's out there and they, you know, have lots of funding they want to distribute, I would love to see somebody support studies that find out when in a woman's cycle it is best to do psychedelics because that is a thing, right? We know we are very different at different times of the month. My guess is that in that, you know, like the time right after your period before ovulation, that's probably the like least volatile time hormone wise to do it. But who knows without testing, we don't know that maybe the second half of your cycle is better. We don't know. So I want that to be tested. There's also many, many, many anecdotal reports that psychedelics affect your menstrual cycle. People will cycle early. um, Their cycle will sync up with the people on their retreat, like lots of different kind of mystical looking things happen in that realm. And so that research should be done. But currently um, I did an episode on microdosing And uh, Dr. James Fadiman had done this research and he polled like 10,000 people and was seeing what they were using microdosing for. Now, again, with the caveat that when we do rigorous studies, we show that microdosing for the things that we have been checking, which is like improved mood, we haven't been checking like PMS symptoms, but mostly your mood gets better if you think it will. A lot of microdosing has been shown to be the placebo effect. However, the placebo effect is still in effect. Yes. So... This study showed that there were a number of women who were microdosing just the five days before their period for PMS symptoms. So might that be something that, you know, I mean, if it can boost mood or it, it can, you know, decrease pain, well, obviously that would make PMS significantly more tolerable. So those are a lot of the avenues that I am very much hoping get funding and get looked at sooner rather than later. You know, ladies, we are 50% of the population. I know. We need to like rattle some cages and get research done. Wow. And even I'm
1: even thinking endometriosis, but here's my fear. And I think endo is a great example. And speaking of the dollars impacting so much of the population, not an understood disease. Let's pretend we look at psychedelics for endo. My question and caution is if we don't even understand why women get it, we're not all aligned around the diagnosis and treatment because of the complexity. There's some consistent thinking, but some of it, some of the nuances are inconsistent for a lot of reasons. What I would hate is let's say we test psychedelics. If we test, and to me, it's always, what's the question you ask? So if the question is, does it help women with endometriosis and their pain? Yes or no? And the answer is yes, great. However, my question would also be, but what does it do otherwise to not treat the endo, but just the pain?
0: We don't really know exactly what causes depression or anxiety or any of these things. Like, we have hypotheses, right? And we, we have some correlations, but they're not all 100%. So, and we also don't know 100% how psychedelics work, right? But we know that they depression and anxiety do exist and that psychedelics do help, right? So, with endometriosis, but I see where, like, okay, if we leave the lesions in, what else is that causing? Then I see that that is an issue. And I think that, you know, then it's not an either or. Then it's like, can psychedelics help the person who is awaiting surgery?
1: exactly you know that kind of thing like and it's all in the question and how they're doing the research and that's my caution is like okay if we do get the funding please look at it right so that we don't put some mask like you know or sweeping statement when there's nuances
0: to it that we need to take into consideration right well like that's i mean that's that's why when they do investigations on cancer they're not saying psychedelics for cancer they're saying psychedelics for cancer pain they are still trying to take out the cancer And so I think that's, you know, the important to remember is that we're never not trying to treat the underlying thing. In fact, with psychedelics, we are generally trying to treat the underlying thing. But when the underlying thing is a cancer or endometriosis or something that it doesn't specifically, and by the way, we, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't treat or treats or doesn't treat those things because we have not investigated it. But until we know that on the off chance it did, until we would know that, yes, we still have to treat the underlying thing separately.
1: So what advice would you give to physicians today? who may be referring patients or even patients who are like, I kind of want to try this. Like what would be, I mean, we talked about so many details, but maybe there's like a summary bit of advice that, that you would like to give to them.
0: Yeah. Well, short of the very self-serving, please join the Psychedelic Medicine Association because it is our entire mission to make sure that you're ready for those conversations. Psychedelic medicine association.org. I mean, because that's entire like we're the first organization in the world entirely uh, designed with that as our mission, right? We want to make sure that doctors are not deer in the headlights when your patients show up asking about psychedelics and that you feel comfortable having those conversations and referring when appropriate. And so, like, let's just talk about ketamine. That's the easiest one. Your patient has maybe treatment-resistant depression, or maybe if we're talking to psychiatrists here and your patient has suicidality and you're thinking, well, ketamine might be an option, then look at what's in the area. Um, I think I would default to a place that had a ketamine-assisted psychotherapist, you know. And look who's been maybe around the longest, who's got, you know, the most, let's say, qualified, trained, experienced staff running it. Um, Those kinds of things can be helpful because different clinics can pop up and and disappear. Um, But look at, like, longevity, look at the therapist situation. I would say for psilocybin, right, like, you cannot... um, aid and abet a patient in getting something illegal. So outside of Oregon, you can educate patients on substances just like you can educate patients on heroin. If a patient came to you and said, what about heroin? You would tell them all of the negatives, right? Right. And that is just research has shown heroin does this, right? You can just as easily say research has shown psilocybin has done this. The fact, just the fact is that psilocybin has done more, you know, has a few more positive uh, benefits than something else like heroin. But Legally, you're allowed to talk about both of them. It only becomes a legal issue when you start aiding and abetting, like "oh, my neighbor can get you some psilocybin," or "my friend runs this clinic." Like those, you cannot do. But um, you know, education-wise, it's it's fine to educate them, and then. You can even educate them from a harm reduction perspective. And you can tell them things like, look, if you're going to do psilocybin, it is best to ask the following questions we just talked about, you know? And so it's all like, if you can frame things from a harm reduction perspective, we are trying to reduce harm for our patients. We're not aiding and abetting. I think that's kind of the, like, look at which side of that line you're on. And then you could feel, you know, safer having that conversation. But if you're actually going to be, you know, referring. I think that might be more of a ketamine situation. And then I would say look at like the experience and try to find a place that has a therapist present at least for one of the first experiences.
1: Wow. Thank you. That's really great advice. And you know, I guess we've talked so much about what needs to be in place. And we know there's all this research. Is there any anything exciting that's that's coming out that we haven't discussed yet or or we haven't brought up that people that it's exciting you about this field there's a lot it's it's one of these where a lot still has to be done but a lot is still happening so it's like this crazy train of the different rails moving at different speeds but it's all happening so yes yeah What's exciting you about this now i'll
0: give i'll give you my three top three for right this minute one i should just let people know that the things that we're talking about that certification and having a license and all that in theory there are a lot of people working on that um it is just going much more slowly than we would like, uh, but know that this is something that you know will happen at some point. We are working on it. You know, not me personally, but like as an, as an industry, we are trying very hard to make that a reality, so that we can be safe and safely incorporated into the medical system. Um, On the research side, one of my favorite things is the investigation of whether DMT will help people recover from strokes because DMT has this property of neurogenesis where, you know, if it can regrow some neurons that you have lost in a stroke, that might be extremely helpful. That is one of my favorite studies because it's kind of the last place. You know, you imagine people going to take psychedelics who are, um, you know, generally, younger, able-bodied, not in a, you know, post-stroke state. Well, psychedelics could have a, you know, purpose and a place and an efficacy in many other populations. And I think we, you know, I'm excited to finally look in that, you know, that post-stroke population and how maybe having psychedelics with, you know, a a friend of mine um, at UCSD has done or is actually still recruiting for a study on psychedelics for phantom limb pain. Because if you take a psychedelic while you're retraining your body to do things, then those new pathways that form can be really functional in different ways. And so the same thing might be, true of the patients who have had, um, strokes. And then the final thing that I'm excited about is another, if you like the debates, um, of, you know, along the lines of, should the therapist have done psychedelics? Another debate that I think should not even be a debate is, uh, whether there should be psychedelics that do not have a hallucinatory component. And I absolutely think that there should be for, um, uh, you know, for the widest swath of people to be able to use them. You know, like if it's the hallucination that is going to somehow impact with whatever like your mental health condition is, you're saying, but if there was a non hallucinatory version where you could still get a lot of the benefits and then suddenly you would be able to take a psychedelic without, you know, maybe even the fear of what's going to go happen when I go to this hallucinatory state, but you still get the neurogenesis or neuroplasticity properties. Wouldn't that be amazing. Right. And so I'm not saying that the, the hallucination doesn't have an absolutely crucial component for some conditions, right? Like that might be where you finally confront your trauma and then you, you know, it's no longer so scary to you and your PTSD is gone. Like you see in these MDMA studies, But who knows, like in the in the stroke study, do they have to go on a hallucinatory trip to fix their neurons? I don't think so. Right. So I'm like very happy that there are places doing research on non, you know, they kind of say like psychedelics without the trip. Um, I am definitely in the camp that the more options we have, it's not an either or it's a yes. And like there should be psychedelics with the trip. There should be psychedelics without the trip so we can get you know the most types of healing to the most people.
1: Wow. That's cool. I had not seen anything about that one. Oh my gosh. This was, this blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm uh, so intrigued by my conversation with Andrew too. Like each interview has been just so different. And, um, I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm so curious of people's reactions because this is absolutely fascinating stuff. And, keep doing what you're doing. I know it's really hard when you're starting something new and healthcare is so hard. Everyone's trying to tackle it. And this in and of itself has its own complexities. So thank you for your commitment. Um,
0: and thank you for making time. This was awesome. Thank you for your great questions and for bringing this to your audience. I really appreciate it.